Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us back at Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. First, I want to make sure you, if you haven't had a chance to check out Clean Capital's latest announcement about our $300 million investment with Manulife. You can learn more about it at cleancapital.com. We are really working hard to, to fund the energy transition, and we're looking for partners to be part of that effort. So please go to cleancapital.com. Today, we have a very special episode. I have invited Derek Walker, who's the vice president of U.S. Climate at the Environmental Defense Fund. And at full disclosure, I'm on the, the uh, board of directors for Environmental Defense Fund C4. Uh, it's an amazing organization doing the critical work we need. Uh, but Derek, I brought on because he has just a great way of explaining what I think is a super complicated issue that many people, even in the industry, don't understand, which is carbon pricing. So what is carbon pricing? What's the history of it? What are some of the paths forward to get carbon pricing implemented? And how will it affect an industry like ours? Uh, that's the, what we're going to talk about today in the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Derek, thanks so much for joining me at Experts Only. It's great to be here, John. Thanks. You know, I'm really excited to dive into this issue because I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of interest in carbon pricing, but folks just don't really understand it. But before we do dive in, I just want to talk about you personally. You you grew up in Baltimore. First of all, was it what sort of drove your interest in first politics? Right, because you used to run the Democratic Party in in, Mass- in Maryland, if I remember. I right. did, I did, yeah. What uh, what triggered your interest in politics? It's really for me. It's always been about trying to make the biggest impact that I can, and. You know, as many young idealists do, I thought politics with a capital P was was a place to do that. And so I jumped into a job on Capitol Hill, which was very um, aligned with where I wanted to start my career. I worked with uh, uh, former U.S. Senator Barbara Mikulski, who's a great role model and mentor of mine. And then I got into more direct politics. I managed a congressional campaign. I advised on a few others. And then I was the executive director of the Maryland Democratic Party. And all of that taught me that, you know, yes, there are many levers within the political sphere and working directly with decision makers. But uh, from a perch outside of the decision making realm, you can make a whole lot of impact by putting pressure on decision makers to act in a way that aligns with public interest. And so um, I learned about climate change really for the first time in um, about 2005 or 2006 in depth when I had a chance to spend a few days with Al Gore and a few uh, other folks who were just really learning the content that that uh, the former vice president used for his for his documentary film, An Inconvenient Truth. And from there, I just decided this is the mission I need to take up for the next part of my career. And that's how oh, I landed at EDF. Yeah, interesting. And you've sort of at EDF, you've had a pretty amazing career. You know, currently you're the vice president of U.S. climate, um, but you've sort of really risen the ranks there and have covered a variety of different arenas like state politics and uh, other topics. Talk a little bit about, you know, first of all, why the Environmental Defense Fund uh, and, you know, what has your experience been there? I think EDF is uniquely situated to bring together the environmental integrity, the science, the economics behind the issues that we work on, along with the perspective of businesses and investors and multinational institutions. 
And we also really believe in ambition that's practical. And I've, as you say, I had a chance to work at uh, in state capitals. I've had a chance to travel uh, internationally to really talk about the importance of market-based pol- environmental policy. Uh, and I, in my current role, I uh, I'm operating uh, a lot of a lot of work inside the Beltway, trying to push um, ambitious federal level legislation. Uh, so, what an important time to be doing that. It's it couldn't be better, <laughs> and uh, it's 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 complex, but I think that the the window is wide open. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're for a lot of us that have been in this space for for a decade now. This is you know we're sort of in the Super Bowl of opportunity. To, we to sure are. Yeah, happen. sure. So there's so much I can talk to you about on climate policy, but I really wanted to spend some time specifically diving into diving into carbon pricing and really give a chance for folks in the, the, the renewable industry and the clean energy industry, a chance to understand what sort of, what are some of the drivers in this space? You know, what are some of the economic drivers? How does this affect, how could this affect an industry like the renewable space and, you know, what they can be doing to hopefully advocate it advocate for it as it comes forward. But before getting into that, you know, there's there's just a bunch of different variations of carbon pricing. Can you step back for a second and talk about sort of the evolution of the concept of carbon pricing to sort of where we are today? Sure. And I'll start by saying kind of at a high level what carbon pricing is and what carbon pricing isn't. Yeah. What carbon pricing is, is a, an attempt to correct one of the most profound market failures out there. You know, we've gotten to where we are now, uh, you know, really on the precipice of some really catastrophic impacts from climate change, in part because uh, it's taxpayers and the individuals affected by by climate uh, pollution, rather than those who produce it uh, and put it into the atmosphere who are paying for it. There's never been a cost. And so the the idea behind carbon pricing really came out of the notion that um, that was first really um, put forward in the IPCC, the very uh, inaugural report from 1990. That w- that's the international body of, of scientists that come together to, to update scientific data on climate change in 1990. And that's when the first carbon pricing bills came out. So that's really carbon pricing in, in a sense is really about correcting uh, a market failure. What it isn't is the only thing we should be doing. And so right, right. carbon pricing is a <laughs> in many ways a secret ingredient it's it's a it's a it's a killer ingredient that you add that sometimes you might not even know right you go to your favorite restaurant and you say that spice i can't really recognize but man it may it really makes the dish and i that's kind of the way i see carbon pricing operating uh, especially important to think about renewable energy uh, and other clean energy technologies it's going to take a, a lot more than just a price on carbon a price on carbon will guide investment and send the signal, point the signal in the right direction, but it's not a substitute for really rapidly increasing our R&D funding at DOE, putting in place performance standards, having you know, strong building codes that, that really drive electrification and, and a whole number of other things. So that's really what it is. It's not a silver bullet. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think because of the, uh, maybe the lack of a better term, the lack of implementation of carbon pricing over the last sort of 20 years, a lot of those other things have, have begun. I mean, think about where the solar market is today, right? We're, it's actually very mature. You know, the wind market, we're seeing offshore wind in a way we've never seen before, sort of hopefully in this next decade. But a lot of that has had to happen 
because carbon pricing wasn't there. And so some of those other ingredients, for using your language, were able to sort of continue to move forward. And this is sort of an accelerant to that, right? We're going to sort of bring the next layer of uh, steroids into the game. Yeah, I think you're right. I think carbon pricing can be a boost, but it can also be an insurance policy because we know that we need to reach a certain level of climate pollution in order to start turning the dial back on um, on climate change. And one of the you mentioned that there's a couple uh, different primary ways of doing carbon pricing. You know, one of them is is really through uh, taxing greenhouse gases, taxing carbon directly. I think that is. Um, you know, that is a, a well-established um, in economic literature. And in fact, it's generally preferred by many, uh, ac- especially academic economists. And then, and the other idea is really around uh, emissions trading, which sets a limit, but gives polluters some flexibility within that limit, which declines every year to, to meet their obligations. And so those are, those are two primary ways that, that have traditionally been thought of. But actually, um, can we go? In, can we go into those just yeah. a little bit. Yeah, second? we sure can. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so when you look at you know the concept of a carbon tax or or um, you know a lot of terminology thrown around is sort of cap and trade, right? There's people look at not understanding how all these things fit together. So the, for me, it's really important to folks understand like the different verticals here. So when when you think about a carbon tax, how would that work? You know, and how is that um, sort of you know walk us through maybe a case study of how that would be implemented. Sure. So with a carbon tax, the government would essentially determine which sources of pollution uh, the tax would apply to. It would not be, um, you know, you hear a lot from, from critics that, you know, that, that the government is trying to tax every small farmer or put a price, you know, take away your cows or take away your hamburgers. Um, that is absolutely not what a carbon price is. There's a well. There's a there's a strong inventory uh, in the U.S. of where pollution comes from, and regulators and policymakers would essentially decide where to put the tax and and then what level to set it. So most carbon taxes would start at a certain level and then increase over time. The on at a baseline, it would increase at the at the rate of inflation, which is essentially keeping it flat. Increasingly, what you what you see in proposals is that the price would also be accompanied by an adjustment feature if the pollution that that tax was supposed to address is not going down fast enough based on the price that's set, then there would be an auto, potentially an automatic adjustment mechanism. The tax would actually go up faster than the rate of inflation. In order to account for the need to to drive pollution down further. But as soon as that carbon tax is implemented, then you suddenly have an incentive across the whole economy, but especially across the sectors that are covered by the tax, to that that advantages low and zero carbon technologies and solutions. A lot of that what you were alluding to, the growth of wind and solar and batteries and other things that, that have become fairly mature over the last decade in the absence of carbon pricing, would then have yet another signal that would benefit those technologies becoming even more accessible and more affordable to more, uh, to more customers. So if you're, if you're a, a coal 
producing plant, right? You're producing a certain amount of carbon. You're taxed based on that carbon. So the tax itself is being paid by the producer, correct? And then they're going to roll that, most likely roll that cost into their cost of power. So really now coal is a more, it would be less, it'll be a more costly power uh, into the marketplace. Am I thinking about that correctly? That's true. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the reasons why we're in the situation we're in now where wind and solar are so ascendant in the markets is because there's less demand, there's already less demand for for coal in in the system. It hasn't taken regulation to get us there. And so, yes, I think that any effective carbon price would further would further hasten the transition away from coal and also from oil and gas, as they also are, um, you know, are high polluting fuels. But but, but, but actually, that correctly, the the tax itself is being paid by the producer. The the tax, it's different for different sectors. So it's different for the power sector versus the transportation sector. But in the power sector, it's either paid by the utility that delivers that power to the end user, or it's paid by the generator. Right. One way or another, the cost is incorporated both at the wholesale and the retail level. And how about on the transportation side? On the tra- transportation side, it's usually paid by the owner uh, of the of the fuel when it leaves the the refinery. So you know if it's if it's conventional transportation fuel, it uh, we say it's at the refinery gate. That's where yeah, the, yeah. that's where it's uh, assessed based on the embodied carbon, the tons of embodied carbon. Yeah, interesting. And that's where that's where I think you know I, w- I wanted to mention that the important feature in any carbon price, one important feature in any carbon price, is ensuring that especially low and middle income consumers are are made whole and, and that the, they don't experience a disproportionate cost associated with um, the imposition of a carbon tax. And so there are ways to do that by making sure that there's a dividend or a bill rebate uh, associated with uh, associated with uh, the carbon price being put in place. And then on the sort of cap and trade, sort of the emission trading system structure, how would that function in the marketplace? So there would be uh, an annual limit uh, set on the amount of pollution that was allowable. With a declining limit that got you, let's say, let's say that you wanted to get to fifty percent of a reduction by twenty thirty from current levels, you would basically say, okay, here's the here are the sources that co- that are covered. Here's the current allowable emissions. Divide those up into emissions allowances, and that goes down every year. And in order to emit, in order to pollute, basically, if you're a, a covered source, you would have to surrender. The number of allowances every year, and that and that that allowable uh, amount goes down. So, who's establishing those allowances? Is it EPA? Is it DOE? Well, if it's at a state level, so in uh, California, where they've had a emissions trading system uh, oh. now for over eight years, uh, that's the state the state government agency that regulates air pollution is responsible for running that program. And then in the Northeast, where there's you know a a consortium of 10 states that are doing a, a emissions trading system across the region. Um, it's actually a, a centralized uh, organization, nonprofit organization that runs that, but it's really driven by each individual state and that's coming Reggie, up with that's their own programs. Program. Right. That's yeah. Reggie. Yeah. 
And then if this ends up getting implemented at a federal level, who do you sort of see it being the, the, the owner of that responsibility? I think it's most likely EPA because yeah. EPA has a lot of the, the authorities delegated by Congress to, to do those things and overseen by Congress. Um, but they could, the, you know, the, the, the federal government could set up an independent entity to, to run, to run that. I mean, I think the, the, there needs to be a certain key criteria. There needs to be strong accountability. Um, there need, we need to be able to have both accurate and transparent and routine measurement and verification to ensure that the emissions are actually going down. And in right. some sectors, the measurement is easier than others. Uh, and there needs to be uh, assurances that the market isn't gamed and manipulated. There's not a lot of evidence that that happens. A lot of the programs that have been put in place have really been have really operated extremely smoothly. And uh, even even though it's uh, it's a it's a common criticism or a common fear that market manipulation occurs. There's been a high degree of confidence and satisfaction among the market participants in places like California and Mercury. Excellent. And then before diving into, I really want to dive into sort of, okay, what's the art of the possible here now politically and, um, you know, what's sort of the state of play in terms of policy? But there's another thing people hear a lot about in this space, and it's the social cost of carbon, which, you know, really doesn't totally fall into those two verticals, but is a different sort of approach to the market. You just outline for folks, what what is the social cost of carbon and does it play into those verticals or is it just a completely different policy approach? Well, it plays into it. And the social cost of carbon is essentially a measure of what the overall cost of pollution is on society holistically. Right. And that would include things like the increase in healthcare costs, not only preventative care, but also uh, treatment associated with things like asthma and and heart disease that are increased because of pollution. It factors in, to some degree, the, the costs of disaster preparedness and cleanup associated with climate impacts. And it also, you know, the, you always hear the, the discount rate uh, argument, which is essentially, you know, how much does it cost now to avoid an impact on future generations? Yeah. And so the social cost of carbon also tries to take the long view and acknowledge that we're talking about uh, planetary systems and the impacts that occur over, you know, in some cases, decades or hundreds of years. And so the social cost of carbon for that reason is a bit of a moral conundrum (laughs) in the sense that you actually are forced to make certain decisions about future generations. And, um, you know, that it, it, it has become a place where there's a big argument between, you know, losing jobs and sacrificing economic growth in the near term versus protecting future generations and and the possibility of, you know, a habitable planet. And, and, and so in that sense, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a ripe playing field for the old arguments, which are largely disproven that you have to choose between economic growth and environmental protection. Yeah, it, it just to simplify, at least the way I've always thought about it, the first two buckets are sort of focused on generation, right? Carbon tax, yes. and, and this is sort of the impacts, right? This is the long term. Uh, you know, if you in traditional climate sense, this is adaptation. <laughs> what are we dealing with long term to adjust to this? Yeah, it's adaptation. It's also, I think, what it will what it will highlight is that if you have a carbon price in place, it is unlikely that it, that price is going to come anywhere near 
the social cost of carbon, even a fairly conservative estimate. And so what it highlights is that to really tackle climate change and to provide the societal protections and benefits necessary to, to safeguard uh, people and communities, you have to have a, a lot of other complementary measures in place other than just a carbon price in order to really generate the level of investment in, um, in community and uh, resilience and protection that you need. Excellent. So let's, you know, let's step into sort of the, the, the current state of play. And I, I do want to talk about the federal more than at the state level. Sure. You know, for yeah, folks no that, that do follow this, you know, I think, no, we're at a possibly very monumental tipping point with a new administration that is very driven by moving some of these policies forward. We've got uh, a, a significant infrastructure bill that's on the table that has, you know, things that will support the clean energy industry, the renewable energy industry, address climate change, like really never before. Uh, and it's an incredibly exciting time. And how in that current debate on the, f- the federal level, and I'm going to get to the politics of it in a second, but on the policy level, like what, what's being put forward and you know, what are some of the, the reasonable paths ahead to actually see this achieved? Well, a lot of been what's being put forward now is um, how to spend money rather right. than how to raise money. And so the carbon price, though it's really about tackling climate change, is often seen as like a, how to raise money. Uh, and, and how to protect the climate. So a lot of a lot of the current debate is focused strictly on the investment side, and and to the extent that those investments are paid for, it's corporate tax increases that have been um, that have really been the central uh, point of discussion, or at least the proposals from the Biden administration. And so we we haven't ad- there's a, there's actually a split screen in some ways where you have members of Congress are still working on and introducing carbon. Pricing bills. We have we've had a, several already in this Congress, and a couple that are uh, coming up here in um, in the spring. And uh, but that's happening almost in a dissociated way from the conversations about how much do we need to inject into the economy right now to really stimulate uh, a economic recovery that that fits into this build back better frame, which I think is really critical. Right. Um, and so there is a possibility and there's been discussion and there's been some promotion of the idea that you might have uh, a carbon price that could be put in place as a revenue generator through uh, a budget reconciliation uh, process. Um, whether that's likely or not is, is, is unclear. What is clear is if we were having in- this conversation a year from now and you were, yeah. to, you were to, to put a wager down, where would you, where would you wager right now? A year from now, yeah. I mean, a year from now, I think that we're going to start seeing the the fruits of these near-term investments in infrastructure, investments in communities, investments in innovation, and in a sense, that that those outcomes will create political momentum for instituting a carbon price to move things along even faster and to really leverage. In the ingenuity of the private sector. I think that, you know, in the near term, it's unlikely that a significant carbon price actually gets enacted. But these these steps forward that that are being put in place now and that are being proposed now can be really important seeds for getting a carbon price enacted and making the case for a carbon price going forward. Let's talk about the politics of it for a second, not from a Republican Democratic perspective, but from an an industry perspective. I mean, I think just about a month ago, the American Petroleum Institute, for the 
maybe the first time, right, came out and supported carbon pricing. I think I'm not sure the details of what they supported. Um, but regardless, the fact that you're having fossil fuel companies, you know, at some level being vocal in support of some of these solutions, you know, they may be saying different things behind closed doors, but publicly are saying things they've never said before. You know, is how is that uh, preparing the stage? Like, what, how do you see that impact in the current debate in in the the DC bubble? Well, I think that businesses are realizing that they have to be able to tell a story about climate ambition within their own advocacy and within their own operations. And individual uh, oil and gas companies have supported carbon pricing for a long time. But this is really the first time that API has has uh, has walked forward with something, and I think that what it shows is is that um, a the corporations, even stalwart uh, uh, entities like API that are not seen as forward leaning, are still ahead of where Congress is on this. Right. right. Um, now API would would rather see a carbon price in exchange for virtually anything else, and so. In a sense, they're saying that a carbon price is their silver bullet and what they would be willing to do, but it would be at the exclusion of all these other measures that we've been talking about. But there are a lot of other companies beyond API that are coming out and saying that a price on carbon needs to be part of the uh, part of the solution set. And that's extremely exciting. How much that changes the politics is a little bit unclear because I think that po- political polarization is still the the governing force inside sure. the Beltway right now. And so sure. companies are kind of, you know, choosing between, uh, trying to choose between, you know, where the public is and where politics is, yeah. <laughs> which which should be a little bit closer than it is right now, yeah. um, but it isn't. And so I think we have to, one thing that I think is- Can I ask you a question on that? Yeah. There was a recent, yeah. um, Anthony Leeswitz at Yale put out some great, I don't know if you ever read his stuff out of the climate, uh, communications program there. So just some great, really data. terrific stuff from that. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Just yeah. really, it, you know, it, the public is much further ahead than really so much further. the Republican party. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, you know, they're, um, you know, we're seeing uh, Lindsey Graham, for instance, this week finally came out and acknowledged climate change, you know, was an issue, which is funny because 10 years ago, he almost co-sponsored the Senate climate bill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how, you know, what, Looking at you know, looking at the listeners on the on the uh, to this podcast, what can they do to help change that? Like, how do we how do we push so that you know our voices are um, are in that echo chamber and forcing the change that we need to happen? I think it's about delivering a message that this is not about altruism. It's not about it's not about some sort of uh, kinder, gentler approach to policy. It's about pragmatic. How do we keep our economy going? How do we stay relevant? How do we not get our lunch and our dinner continually eaten by the EU and China who are heavily investing in the clean energy technologies of the future and making significant commitments to climate action? I think that's what I think it's about saying that there is no path to prosperity that is anything other than one that's characterized by climate ambition. And delivering that message and providing cover for political figures who are increasingly coming out and talking about it, uh, it being climate as something that can deliver economic value, it, having investors and corporate leaders and innovators saying that, echoing that is vital because the, 
it's just not going to be possible for the White House and for Congress to keep their foot on the pedal if we don't have folks with credibility in the market saying that saying the same. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's, it's such a it's, it's just a, a separate voice to bring to the table. And But I think a lot of people struggle on, OK, so what do I do? Like, where can I sign up to learn? Where yeah. are the talking points? Should be part of a lobby day? You know, where would you direct folks to be able to take action? I think there are, there are a lot of incredible uh, organizations right now, like Ceres and the We Mean Business Coalition. But there are a lot of so there's a lot of coalitions. But there's also you know now, especially with you know Zoom visits to the Hill, um, members are taking a lot more meetings directly with their constituents and with and with stakeholders. And I think the business voice, bringing the business voice directly to members to let them know privately that when they speak out publicly, there's going to be an echo chamber of support behind them. And, you know, we, whether it is, um, whether it's through participation in, you know, PAC activities or through individual giving or through advocacy support, through, you know, things like op-eds or going on the radio, if business leaders and investors can say, look, we have your back, we have your back. And it's not, we don't have your back because we, we're going out on a limb. We have your back because guess what? Your constituents are lined up behind you. And we can guarantee that we're going to be one of them that's going to be lined up behind you publicly when you stick your neck out on this. And it, it's not really about sticking your neck out. It's about doing what, what voters and communities actually want. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and you know, it, it's not a monumental effort to get involved. I mean, there's uh, is uh, full disclosure, Derek knows this on the, on the board of the Environmental Defense Fund Action. There's places you can sign up to get the, get the ability to, to link into your member. But it's also just writing a local op-ed and you know, being here in Buffalo, the Buffalo News, it's way more impactful to your localized members than doing it in the, in the Washington Post. Than oh, York completely, Act. John. Completely. So, so exactly just, right. We need everyone to take action on this to drive change. But, and it may not happen this summer in the infrastructure bill, but you know, I think, you know, pay close attention to carbon pricing because it's going to be on the table here over the next year. Derek, thank you so much for, for the time today and really helping walk me through and, and others, you know, this super complicated issue. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to talk with you anytime. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll ask you the same question I ask all my guests at the end. If you can go back to yourself in Baltimore and you could sit down uh, before you got into politics and could grab a coffee or a beer with yourself, what, what piece of advice would you give yourself? I always stay true to you, what, what you feel in your gut. I mean, I think that a lot of, a lot of the political game involves, you know, posturing and maneuvering, and it challenges you to really um, depart from the values that you hold dear. And I think, I think that uh, usually when I think about where I am today, it's, I've returned to my, to my values, but um, being involved in politics was a little bit of a challenge sometimes on that front. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Derek, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and thanks to the team at Environmental Defense Fund and our producers, Colin Young and uh, Carly Batten, for putting this together. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, 
and finance with you.